Welcome to the Africa Legal Podcast Series, where we interview those making an impact on the legal sector in countries across Africa. I'm Carol Campbell, the editor of Africa Legal, and today I'm speaking to Barry Vitu, the co-chair of Greenberg Traurig's Global White Collar Criminal Defence Practice and head of its London White Collar Defence and Special Investigations Practice. Barry's focus is on defending clients accused of white collar crime, conducting corporate investigations into concerns around misconduct, and advising businesses on how to keep their operations clean. Welcome, Barry. Hi, welcome. COVID-19 has become a business crisis the world over. Does this mean there could be increased risk of fraud and error? Uh, Sadly, I think it probably does. Um, Fraudsters um, will always uh, jump on to... um, to the latest thing where there's an opportunity for them and uh, plainly COVID-19 offers that opportunity Um, a combination of large um, amounts of government money being offered um, will no doubt be uh, attractive to fraudsters Um, but um, more importantly I think for those listeners to this particular podcast will be the risks um, that that businesses will be subject to as a result of COVID-19, um, primarily, I think, um, or a lot of the, rather a lot of these will flow from the fact that overnight businesses have had to go from effectively physically uh, present sort of face-to-face type businesses to remote type businesses. And so, yeah, to give a very simple example, if um, previously it was required to have two original signatures on the form in order to finance to wire some money. Um, that will no longer be possible. So people will come up with a workaround to ensure that wiring of money can take place. And of course, as soon as the workaround has, taken, has, has been come up with for a legitimate purpose, it can likewise also be used for an illegitimate purpose. So um, there are already, I think the DOJ has already started to prosecute um, uh, COVID-19 type crimes and other um, law enforcement agencies are also on the case and have reported an uptick in um, phishing scams, those sorts of things. Um, so, yes, unfortunately, I do think there is an increased risk of fraud at this time. Yes, you, you mentioned the word remote, and I know myself, I, we, I'm working from home now, and there's so many of us doing it. Um, and you touched on the fact that this could make a business more vulnerable to white-collar crime. Um what sort of crime should businesses be watching out for at this time? Well, I think um, one of the, uh, I think phishing scams um, where uh, people will send, for example, an email um, requesting uh, the recipient to click on a link, uh, those sorts of things people need to be extremely vigilant, vigilant about with people spending more time on screens. Um, clicking away without necessarily thinking about it, there is a risk there. Um, again, another example would be, would be fraudsters that essentially socially profile people online. They now know that pretty much all businesses are operating online um, and there they are opportunities for them to work out who is doing what, fake an email address so that uh, they come in looking like somebody, a client perhaps, uh, asking uh, a lawyer who's got some money on client account to wire those monies to an, a, to, um, to an account 
or uh, to intercept or to fake um, an invoice, perhaps for a, a regular payment run that the business usually makes, uh, but the fresh invoice might arrive, you know, a day or so before with with new bank details. Um, those sorts of things. I think um, the examples where um, the invoicing fraud are particularly prevalent. Uh, they were prevalent before this, and they have become increasingly prevalent. I think as a result of this. Um, and that's an example where you you would you have a, a, perhaps a monthly payment run. Um, the, the the invoice comes in. Uh, it's got changed bank details. Perhaps you've received an email from somebody at the payee company asking for the money to be wired to a different account. Um, and if if the, the 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 staff in the finance team need to be vigilant enough to appreciate that, rather than simply tapping in the revised banking details and wiring the money. Uh, they need to verify that, in fact, the, the legitimate recipient of those funds um, uh, has changed its bank account and that the, the new bank account details are not, in fact, the details of uh, a fraudster's account. And there are huge numbers of those invoice scams that take place and si significant monies which are wired to the wrong person. Of course, once it's gone, it's quite hard to recover because it sort of starts to flash around the globe through multiple bank accounts. So um, those sorts of things, I just I think um, one of the key things to do when working remotely is is not to lose sight of the fact that you know if you get those sorts of requests that come in, um, always make sure that the person who knows the client, for example, um, has the client's you know home mobile telephone or Zoom details or whatever, is able to verify them personally, um, perhaps not face to face, uh, but um, make contact with them perhaps over you know facetime or zoom or something like that to make sure that those fresh instructions are legitimate and um, they're not the victim of some um, fraud invoice scam fraud Barry, that, that was leading to my next question which was um could you give advice to firms navigating these choppy waters but picking up on what you've said it's clear that uh, finance teams um and good relationships with clients are key to protecting a business, that you have to really focus on the individuals in, in the finance department especially. <clears throat> Is that the sort of advice you're giving to your clients? Yeah, I mean, I think what I, what I would advise all businesses to do um is to perhaps look at their businesses again in the new environment and do a quick risk assessment to try to um, identify where in a remote uh, working um, environment they are now um, potentially susceptible to additional risk and what steps they need to take to address those new areas of risk. Some of them, like the example that I've just given, will be generic. Everybody's going to have... Um, uh, the need to, to pay suppliers and um, they're going to have to be doing that uh, with their finance team scattered around the place, not all working in one place. So that's one example. But the best thing to do is to really work out where you think your risks are in your business. So start, I would say, in the first instance, rather than sort of do things on an ad hoc basis, have a do a little mini risk assessment to work out where you think the risks are and then go from there to try to to try to address those risks with perhaps slightly revised systems and controls. 
that brings us quite naturally into our next question because in a time of crisis, I know coping with the demands of the here and now always takes priority. But when, in fact, it's updating those policies and procedures that should be top of the to-do list, um, and you've laid out why that's so important, have you got any examples of where, where this has been done and where it's protected a business just by having a good, solid procedure in place? <clears throat> well, you never really hear about those, do you? The, the, no. the, the, the examples where um, a crisis or a problem was avoided or averted. Um, but, um, but I think that's sort of the point, really. Um, you know, those, those businesses that have adopted those risk assessments have made sure um, that, for example, their employees not clicking on sort of random links that look suspicious that are coming into the business, for example, you know, they they and that therefore have not been subjected to you know the online fraud or um, uh, the attack that they may otherwise have been subjected to um, tend to go unsung. So. Um, what I can tell you is that there's plenty of examples of firms that have not done those things um, that have been subjected to problems. I mean, I've, I've certainly, over the years, advised um, clients in a variety of situations where, for example, um, you know, on a busy day uh, where the fraudster knows that somebody's under a lot of pressure, um, they've they've doctored um, an email address, sent it to a, to somebody not working in the office, and asked them to send you know a six figure sum um, to one of their suppliers from their client accounts. Money subsequently sent um, after there was you know pressure because of um, uh, person A not in the office, person B not in the office, person A very busy, delegates it to person B, person B is a subordinate. Um, person A is still very busy, supposedly getting uh, repeatedly um, frustrated and aggressive emails, not aggressive, but, you know, pressured emails from clients wanting the money to be sent, um, instructs person B to do the, you know, to do what's required to send the money, money sent, um, subsequently turns out uh, that that was the wrong account. By the way, once the money's been sent the first time and they know that they've got a sort of... Um, a compliant victim, you can expect them to do it again and again. It's a bit like if um, burglars, the b houses that get burgled tend to get burgled more than once because the burglars realise that there are weaknesses in the security around the property. So it tends to happen again and again, and they'll do it over in over a fa fairly short period until they can that they, they sort of they can do it no more, sort of thing. So. Um, there will be plenty of examples where people put these things in place and don't get um, caught out. But there are also the ones that I unfortunately end up dealing with are examples uh, on the defence side tend to be examples where people come to me and say, um, we've just lost, you know, half a million dollars or whatever. Um, you know, can, can you help us? And um, in many cases, the answer is, um, there's not really very much that you can do. By the way, if one of the if this if you are subject to, the, to this, perhaps one of the most efficient things and quick things that you can do is to tell the bank immediately, because occasionally the banks have not instigated the series of transfers that are almost always um, ordered by the fraudsters. So once that money hits the account, they try to disperse it rapidly, 
Um, but sometimes you can, if you get to the bank quick enough, you can you can get the bank to stop dispersing the funds. So at least there is some money left in an account that can ultimately be returned to you in due course. This is all about playing on human weakness. And so it's really monitoring and supervising staff under these new circumstances is key. Um, and it is tricky. Is there anything that businesses or bosses can do to sure, ensure that everybody sticks to the protocols, sticks to the procedures, especially when people are working all over the place and you really, it's not quite as easy as it was to quickly nip down the corridor? Uh, um, no, I, well, I, I, you're right. It, it, it um, does become potentially more difficult. I think one of the key things um, in all of this will be communication. Um, it's really important that employees and those working for you don't feel isolated and so um, or um, somehow feel that they it's hard for them to pick up the phone or um, have a FaceTime or do a call over the internet a virtual call over the internet or whatever um, you know we don't we want people to if they if they have doubts or any questions to be, you know, picking up the virtual telephone and um, and making the call to ask others what they think. I mean that, uh, and to give an example of that, which I just to sort of um, underscore the point. You know, the very simple way um, that's extremely successful, um, which I've alluded to already, in um, uh, preventing the invoice scamming frauds that I was talking about, is simply that somebody who has the client relationship or the supplier relationship phones the supplier up that they know personally and says, we've just got your monthly invoice. We see you've changed your bank details. Have you? Yeah. And, and and if they say no, then uh, you might have just saved yourself a significant amount of money by that simple step, which took no time at all. But of course, um, the danger of working remotely, there are many great things about working remotely and being online all the time is, of course, that there is a tendency for people to communicate solely over email in circumstances where, um, you know, a phone call might suffice uh, or might do. And, of course, um, there is a – we are probably possibly or probably more vulnerable online if we don't have that, you know, real-time face-to-face or at least, um, you know, telephone contact so, and by the way, I mean there are putting to one side the um, the, the compliance or the, uh, the the fraud risks by simply doing everything remotely online and never speaking to a human being. Um, there are very good business sort of reasons for keeping in t- contact with your um, customers and suppliers um, to, and I think you mentioned, you know, to to maintain that relationship. Um, to ensure, you know, so it's a it's a piece of business development. So um, it's good across the board to maintain that sort of contact and not simply to be on the end of a computer, you know, replying to emails um, without that contact. And and what you're saying is also speaking to management style and uh, human rela- um, human resources. Um, I, I'm just thinking if you, you can't have a very uh, aggressive boss or somebody that uh, makes people afraid to to raise issues in this kind of circumstance. Everybody has to be able to um, look upwards, I guess, if, if they need help. Well, I think leadership, I mean, I think that's, I think that's um, what I've described and what you've just described is a truism, um, you know, in the current 
um, COVID-19 scenario or just more generally? I mean, I'm aware, for example, more generally um, that oftentimes you will have uh, a business may well have a, a salesman, for example, operating in a territory away from headquarters and that that person may well be operating across a fairly large region and on their own. And, um, you know, it, I would recommend COVID-19 or otherwise that that person, you know, is, is maintains contact and the at headquarters clients and others maintain contact with that person, make sure they're okay, et cetera, et cetera, for the reasons that I've previously alluded to, which is that, you know, you don't want people to be isolated. You want people to be part of the team. You don't, you want them um, to uh, think that they can pick up the phone um, to the extent that you, you've, you have new systems and controls or rules around certain things to, to take into account the COVID-19 remote working um, uh, that we're all doing at the moment, above and beyond those which you had in place before. You want to be able to be communicating those. And so, again, I just I would say communication, communication, communication is really important in all of this. The flip side of that is that if somebody does feel isolated and and does have doubts, but does doesn't feel sufficiently confident um, or doesn't really want to pick up the phone for whatever reason and make a choice on their own, which is a sort of judgment call, you know, the chances are that the, there's, a, there's, a, there's a good chance um, that, that, that some of some of those judgment calls, at least, are going to be the wrong calls. And so, you know, um, I think communication is key. If you've got people operating remotely, make sure that they don't feel isolated, make sure that there are regular get-togethers, make sure um, that you hear from them the sorts of challenges which they face um, and um, sort of instigate, you know, any new sort of protocols that you have to to try to minimise those risks as best you can. Um, that, that, that would be my primary suggestion. So interesting to hear you speak. Um, you know, Barry, I know that we've spoken in a previous interview for Africa Legal about doing business in Africa now, just swinging away from COVID-19 into a world post-COVID, you've had some good advice for investors interested in gaining a foothold on the continent. Can you recap, um, what should an investor do before going into a new territory where they don't know the rules? I think the basic approach remains the same. Do your due, do your due diligence. I think in a post-COVID world, I suppose the, the, that becomes doubly important. Um, because certainly for some businesses, you know, the, the, the position pre-COVID, and there'll be far more history and data that relates to that period, um, uh, may, not, may have been significantly adversely affected by a relatively short period um, where there is limited data. So, um, you know, I, I think I said before when we spoke before about this, you know, don't fall into the trap of marrying in haste and repenting at leisure. Um, do your homework and make sure that you know as best you can what you're getting into. And it will be very interesting to see, I think, what happens um, uh, when this uh, particular issue has um, stabilized to such an extent that people feel confident about, um, you know, investing um, Again, I mean, there's certainly going to be, I would imagine, 
a pause uh, while people sort of assess and take on board what's happening at the moment. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the, the same old, I mean, the same basic rules will still apply. So if you were going into Africa, would you say a local partnership with a good, respected law firm would be a solid place to start? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it, it plainly, um, it's really important that there are people, um, you, you need to understand your local environment. You need to understand the legal framework. You need to understand, you know, the the the, the, the way things, um, uh, how how things are administrated. So you definitely, definitely uh, will need to be guided by local lawyers in uh, relevant jurisdictions. That is for sure. And if and if um, and, for, and again for those for I think we discussed this before, but. Um, you know, those those that uh, wander into a jurisdiction without doing their due diligence, without and and that would include you know liaising with local council and relevant jurisdictions, uh, without doing all of that, are really um, extremely vulnerable um, to making the incorrect judgment calls or um, being subjected, you know, uh, as a to, to a targeted target of fraud or other things so they def i would definitely always advise um that if you're going into africa or frankly any jurisdiction um liaising with local council to understand the the legal framework and environment you're um going to be going into is pretty critical what does a business person do if they are well down the road in terms of finalizing a deal and is then asked for a bribe well, I mean, the, the simple answer is don't pay the bribe. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I mean, I, I think the for the for the for the person who's um, who's on the ground that's faced with that particular scenario, the really important thing which they should be doing <clears throat> is following <clears throat> following the processes that their, of their corporate of their of their employer's um, compliance program, and they will almost well. In many cases, they will cater for these sorts of things. So, uh, first off, I mean, obviously, you don't pay the bribe. But second, typically, large corporate groups, compliance programs will detail what to happen in those scenarios. It will typically involve liaising with compliance who would be there to help. And in those circumstances, the individual on the ground, their protection lies in following the compliance program. So, um, for those uh, and again, if we're going back to what we were saying just now, of course, that's communication, communication, communication. It requires the individual on the ground, A, to be aware of the policy that they are um, subject to, in addition to you know, local law and other laws that would preclude and criminalise that sort of the, the payment of a bribe. But importantly, you know, they're aware of the policy they're aware that this thing has happened. They reject it. They phone back um, to HQ to communicate the problem, at which point um, all the guidance and support in the world should be there for that individual to guide them through so they don't feel isolated. They feel less vulnerable. And, um, you know, they are able to, ex they are assisted in extricating themselves from that situation. So don't pay the bribe. And that goes right down to the traffic op who stops you and wants the 300 rand or whatever. <laughs> don't pay the bribe. 
Yeah, yeah I, I think so. I mean, I, I think the, the only um, the only caveat to that is, um, you know, obviously that there are um, uh, accepted. Uh, you know, I don't think there is any. Uh, there are very there are a few few people that would say put your life on the line. So um, if you're stopped in the dead of night by a traffic cop who threatens, you know, <laughs> who threatens you with a machine gun unless you fork over whatever, then um, play, and and you know your phone's taken away or whatever, then I mean plainly the sensible thing to do is to pay, you know, the fairly nominal sum that they're asking and get out of there without risking your life. But um, you know those things are fairly extreme, and in many cases, um, uh, they they th- that will not be the position. And by the way, that exemption doesn't work all the time. So it might work on a one-off basis if you really feel that your life is in jeopardy. But of course, if every day at five o'clock you drive down the road and the traffic cop stops you, smiles, and you hand over the money, and then you claim that you felt that your life was in jeopardy, then then the then that that approach wouldn't work. But people, you know, people more realistic, uh, just to be um, clear, people shouldn't be putting their lives on the line, uh, but but they, they shouldn't be paying bribes. Carry on a final note, as a London-based lawyer used to moving around the globe, can I just ask how you're managing your life at the moment under this new normal? Well, funnily enough, I um, I think... Uh, it, it's in some ways um it's obviously different um i find that the, the technology has helped a lot uh, and helps a lot and i think it's changing behavior not just my behavior but everybody's behavior i mean pretty much everybody is working remotely at the moment so that means that you know whereas for before for example if i were to want to have a meeting with you know somebody in africa or you know take take your pick of places you know somewhere in europe it would typically require me to go and visit that person and meet that person in person because i know in places like africa but it's true i think in many many places you know we're human beings and we like human contact and face-to-face contact and so if you really want to be able to do that then you know traveling to the place um, staying at the place, meeting the people in person is really important, and those and many people will want to meet people in person so they can take the measure of the person. And culturally, that's what they just do. Of course, all that's gone out the window pretty much in the course of the last few weeks, and so people are both both sides of the equation are having to adjust their behaviour. So I've found um, that actually I've been able to do been, been able to work quite efficiently, funnily enough by having the meetings and, and uh, that perhaps I would have had to travel and spent a long time trying to schedule uh, in person in different places online. And so, yeah, so that side of it's, that side of it's been pretty good. I mean, obviously, um, you know, from a personal perspective, it's very frustrating. It would be nice, for example, uh, to be able to go and have dinner and um, in a restaurant and, go out to lunch and, and meet friends and colleagues and stuff like that. But, you know, I've certainly been making the best of it. How about you? <laughs> Working from home and wrestling over the, the single desk in the house. <laughs> it has been a challenge, I have to admit. <laughs> Barry, thank you so much for joining us today. And, and thank you to all our listeners. Keep an eye out for further episodes in the Africa Legal Podcast series. 
And if you have any topics or guests that you would love to have us feature, please feel free to contact us via Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or email. Details are available on the site. Until next time, this has been Carol Campbell speaking to Barry Vatu for the Africa Legal Podcast.